0: Chazal tell us that from the time of Odomarishon until the generation of Noach, ten generations made Hashem angry. Granted, Odomarishon was a tremendous individual. Granted, he served Hashem properly, albeit not perfectly, but he served Hashem as a tzaddik. But the generations after began a downcline. And it got to a point where Hashem, if it could be decided, to end humanity. And Parshas Noah opens up. Eilat told us Noah. These are the events of Noah. Noah it's sadik, tomim hayabiterosov. There was one man, singular and unique, not just in his generation, but in all the generations. Noah was the single person out of ten generations who was worthy to rebuild humanity from. And whilst we don't now really focus on the greatness of Noah, Chazal had such an appreciation and an understanding. The machlokis in the Gemara is, would Noah have been an astonishing great human being next to Avram or not? But there's no question that he was a tzaddik. And there's no question that he reached a level that's hard to imagine. And he was a novi. The Rambam describes to us that a Navi is one who reaches such a high level of Kedusha, holiness and purity, that he's able to speak to Hashem. Hashem will appear to him sometimes in a dream, sometimes directly, but Hashem spoke to Noah. And Hashem told Noah that the end of humanity has come from you and from you alone I will rebuild the world. And in fact, Hashem told Noah to build this teva. Hashem instructed him what to do. And Noah went about this. And in the very end, Right before the actual mabul is to engulf humanity, the Pesach says, Noach, his son, his wife, and his children's wives came with him into the Teva, because of the waters of the mabul. And Rashi is bothered by a problem. It seems that the only thing that forced Noach into the Teva was the water. But Hashem told him it's going to come and Hashem told him seven days before, in seven days it's going to happen. But it implies that Noah waited until the actual water forced him into the Teva. And Rashi brings in the Medrash, that's in fact exactly what happened. Noah did not enter the Teva until the water literally forced him in. It wasn't until the water was coming up to his thighs that he and his family entered the Teva. It says, Rashi, af Noach mektani emunahaya. We see that even Noah was small of emuna. He believed and didn't believe. He didn't enter the Teva until the water forced him in. And Rashi's telling us a profound concept that Noah believed and he didn't believe. He believed on one level that Hashem was going to bring the Mabel, Horaya, he built the Teva. He spent years and years building this ark. But he didn't fully believe. He believed and he didn't believe, sort of be in betwixt and between. And it wasn't until the water actually forced him in that he went in, because it wasn't really 100% clear to him, he wasn't fully mamin, af noach And this concept should be rather, rather difficult for us to understand. Because here's a man who is a tzaddik. Here's a man who's a novi, given a directive straight from Hashem. And let's focus on what this tzaddik was doing. All the Rishonim are bothered by, <clears throat> why did Hashem ask Noah to build a teva? There are many, many ways that Noah could have destroyed humanity and kept Noah and his family alive. Hashem could have built a platform, an island, many, many ways. Why is it that Hashem asked Noah specifically to build this ark? Because as Rashi explains in the Midrash, that Hashem wanted there to be a very clear sign to everyone alive then, that Hashem was going to destroy the world. You see, for 120 years, Noah built the Teva, and people asked him, what are you doing? He planted cedar trees, lines and lines of cedar trees, and he waited till they grew tall and strong. Then he began cutting them and planing them, and he erected this very large vessel. During the years and years of production, people asked him, what are you doing? He was a famous man, well known, and he said to him, what am I doing? I'm building a teva because Hashem is going to destroy the world. Why? Because you're wicked. Because you're going in the wrong way. And explains Rashi, the reason why Hashem wanted Noah to build this teva is because Hashem wanted Noah to be the Magid, to be the one who taught Musa to his generation to straighten out the people. And what that means in plain language is that for 120 years, this Sadiq was engaged in a constant debate, constant battle with people, telling them, If you don't do tshuva, Hashem will destroy the world. It's going to happen. I'm telling you it's going to happen. Here are the cedar trees. Here are the plain wood. Here is the beginning of the construction. And year after year, this man was giving Musar, was teaching, and apparently he didn't fully believe it. And it's very, very difficult to understand. But one more step. Ramoshe Feinstein was a rov when he was still single, when he was 20 years old. He was a tremendous and <clears throat> a tremendous tamal chacham, and at 20 he was a rov in Europe, and he wrote Chuvas <clears throat> back then, and he was already an established post And you'd imagine <clears throat> that as great as Ramosha was at 20, he was far greater at 40. And could you imagine <clears throat> how great Ramosha Feinstein was at 60? But all of that pales in comparison to who the man was when he was 90, a man of unimaginable stature, unimaginable proportion. Because the reality is you could be a great person when you're young, but if you continue growing and growing, you become greater and greater, and you become vastly different. When the Mabel came, Noah wasn't 40 nor 60. He was 600 years old. From the age of 480 to 600, he spent being the mochiach of his generation, being the Torah teacher, <clears throat> being the one giving Musar. He was a Navi. Hashem spoke to him directly. How is it possible that he was mam min venuma. He believed and he didn't believe. It sounds absurd. It sounds beyond our ability to <clears throat> make sense of it. The question is, what's pshat in this Rashi? And to understand this Rashi, I think it'll be very helpful if we focus on the way that Hashem made man. And to do that, I'd like to share with you an illustration. As a youth, I spent many years involved in martial arts and karate, and when you're really involved in something as a hobby, as as an interest, you begin to learn some of the personalities and some of the quirks of people involved. I'd like to share with you that not every martial artist is a rocket scientist, not every martial artist is an Einstein, And some some did things that were hmm, what we call not so clever. There was one fellow who was a second or third degree black belt, quite skilled quite talented as a martial artist, who wanted to prove how tough he really was. Now, this was when everyone was going around breaking things. Some people would break wood. Some people would would break bricks. This fellow was going to show the world how tough he was He wasn't going to break anything wood or anything made of cement. He was going to break his thumb. And he called together a demonstration. called together people to show quite how tough he was. And he took a hammer. And he took his hand, put his hand on a desk. And in front of many people lifted that hammer and smashed down on his thumb full force. (laughs) But he didn't succeed. He didn't break his thumb. So he lifted the hammer a second time and smashed down... And succeeded in breaking his thumb. Now we don't call that very clever where I come from. We call that very dumb, because you prove that you're very tough. You prove that you're very foolish, because you damaged yourself. And here's the reality: when Hashem created man, if it could be Hashem had a problem, the neshama of man is brilliant. The neshama of man is insightful. The neshama of man sees from one end of the earth to the other. How do you give the neshama of man, b'chira, free will, when free will means that potentially you'll damage yourself? You see, we don't understand this, but the M'sulah Shisham describes what Yira sachet is. We think of yirah sachet, fear of the sin, I guess, I don't know, fear of a hammer from above hitting us. God will strike me down with lightning. Evil things will befall me. The Sharm describes Yura and he says, Yura is the knowledge that this activity is damaging to me. Hashem wants my betterment. Hashem wants me to grow. Hashem gave me mitzvahs because they helped me. Yura is a level of understanding that I shouldn't do this act. Why? Because this act is bad for me. It will cause me harm, cause me damage. And there's a part of man that's brilliant, a part of man that so clearly sees that he couldn't possibly do anything damaging to himself. When Hashem created Adam Arishon, the Medrash tells us that before he created Adam, Hashem turned to the Malachim and said, let us create man, as if asking permission. And the Malachim said, "Matibo, <clears throat> Excuse me. what is the nature, what is this man that you want to create? Explains Hashem to the Malachim, <clears throat> His wisdom is greater than yours. And then after creating Odom, <clears throat> Hashem gave a challenge to the Malachi Ashoris, to the upper <clears throat> celestial angels, and He said to them, Tell me the name of each animal. And the Malachim couldn't do it. But I want to explain to you why they couldn't do it. In English, <clears throat> we name things by convention. I call this a table, <clears throat> that a chair, that a wall, because <clears throat> people began calling it, it's more convenient than calling it a thing or whatever. So by convention, by custom, we began calling a four-legged object with a slab on top of a table, a thing that you sit on a chair, a thing that stands on the side, a wall. And by custom, by convention, those became the names. But Lashon HaKodesh is far holier, and Hashem created the world with Lashon HaKodesh. What Hashem was asking the Malachim was to define the essence of the animal define its inclination, and define its nature, and define the very essence of that creature, its nefesh bahami and its physicality with one term. And as brilliant as the malachim were, they couldn't do it. Because that wisdom was beyond them. And then Hashem called forth Adam and said, name the animals. Ze, sus, Zeshur, sure, each one, perfectly, Adam named. He defined the essence, the nature, the inclination of the animals in one term, because he was granted wisdom that was so unparalleled that the Malachim mistook him for Hashem. The Medrash tells us that at a certain point, the Malachim thought if it could be that he was Hashem. Adam Arishan was brilliant beyond our understanding. And he had wisdom that far outshines anything that had been created before. And here's the problem. How do you take such a brilliant, understanding neshama and give it free will? Free will means I can go either way. I could do this. I could not do it. And it's my choice. And because I chose, I'm given credit. Because I choose, I grow. But here's the problem. A malach would never do something foolish. I would never put my hand in a fire. I would never drink bleach. Most people wouldn't take a hammer and break their thumb. How do you take a man, put him in the world, and say, here are mitzvahs, they're good for you, you'll grow, you'll accomplish. Here are veras, avoid them because they'll damage you. How do you put man in the world and give him free will where he could just as easily choose good or bad? It would be impossible. No fool would damage himself. No fool would burn himself. And if it could be, <clears throat> Hashem had a problem. How do you take man with the wisdom greater than Malachim, put him into a situation where he literally could go either way, where he's challenged and it's his choice, it seems to be an impossibility. And the Chovas of Vavis explains to us <clears throat> that to allow for free will, <clears throat> Hashem introduced a whole other dimension into the human personality. And if you'd like to understand that other dimension, all you have to do is go into the wild kingdom and you'll see that every animal in existence has a nefesh. Every animal has a vibrant life part to it and that vibrant life part to it has all of the instincts, inclinations and desires to keep it alive. By nature, the robin hungers for the worm. By nature, the cat hungers for the mouse instinctively two bullfrogs join together to mate. They don't sit down on a leaf and say, hmm, I think it's time for us to bring about the next generation. There's an instinct, there's a drive, appetites, within the nefesh, <clears throat> within the live, vibrant part of every animal, Hashem implanted all of the desires and needs to keep that animal alive <clears throat> as well as the species as a whole. And if you study the wild kingdom, you'll see phenomenal exhibitions. You'll see swans that mate and remain pair-bonded forever. You'll see squirrels that hide away acorns and months later find them. You'll find birds that hide 25,000 seeds in 25,000 different places and will then pick them up months later. It's not wisdom but it's certain imprinted, certain instinctual drives, appetites, to keep the animal alive. Within me, there is also a nefesh bahami Hashem implanted in man all of the drives necessary to keep man alive, as well as bring about the next generation. Within me are all of the instincts necessary. And in one hand, the human being is a live, vibrant animal, much like the ape, <clears throat> much like the baboon, is a man, with all of the drives necessary to keep him alive, <clears throat> all of the drives necessary to bring about the next generation. But within me is another part, the neshama that's brilliant and insightful. And the I who am speaking to you, the I who thinks, am made up of two very distinct parts. Part of me is a pure neshama that only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. Then neshama wants to serve Hashem, that Neshama sees the future that Neshama understands why I was created and there's another part of me a nefesh a Bahami with all of the drives and instincts that you'll find anywhere else in the animal kingdom whether it be a dog, whether it be a baboon whether it be a giraffe and the I who think the I who am the occupant of my body am made up of two very distinct parts and I am in utter contradiction one minute I want this next minute I want that One minute I so desire to be good and proper and right, and the next minute I just don't care. One minute I feel another Jew's pain and it hurts me, and the next minute there's a voice inside that says, what do I care about anyone but me? And the I am in utter contradiction, and the I am ever-changing. One side or the other gains primacy, much like a muscle that with use grows stronger, with disuse atrophies, if the Nefesh HaSikhli is used, if a person does what's right, what's good, what's proper, if he follows the Torah system, that part becomes stronger, <clears throat> comes more to the fore. If a person follows his Nefesh Bahami and just gives in to his desires, <clears throat> that part becomes stronger, more dominant. But the I whom in between am always challenged, <clears throat> always changing with one side or the other becoming more dominant. But there's one more step. How smart is the nefesh of Bahami? How wise is that nefesh contained within the animal kingdom? Now we know that it has many instincts, and know, we know that instinctually the lion will hunt the ideal prey. It knows how to track, it knows how to stalk. The timing is impeccable. But the nefesh of Bahami has no wisdom. Let me share with you an example. In nineteen fifty two Japanese scientists began an experiment. They wanted to see how readily monkeys could learn new behaviors, not how readily they could learn <coughs> behaviors that they copied <coughs> that were innate to them, but a totally new behavior that had never been in that colony in that <coughs> species of monkey. So, what they did <coughs> was they chose a colony of macaw monkeys, which are on an isolated island. These <coughs> monkeys are a few hundred of them on this island. They lived there, and the Japanese scientists selected them as a test group. And what the scientists would do was as follows. Every morning they would come to the beach, and they would leave sweet potatoes on the beach. Now, these macaw monkeys were particularly fond of sweet potatoes and would enjoy them as a treat. But the scientists would do something interesting before they left the sweet potatoes. What they would do is they would rub them in the sand. The sweet potatoes are somewhat moist. When the scientists rubbed them in the sand, the sand stuck to the sweet potatoes. Each morning, the scientists would rub the potatoes in the sand, leave them on the beach, and each morning, the colony of monkeys would come down to pick up the sweet potatoes. And this is what would happen. The first monkey would pick up the sweet potato, take a big bite, swallow it, (coughs) start gagging because there was now sand in its throat, throw the sweet potato down, Another one would try the same trick. He, too, would bite into the sweet potato, swallow a little bit, get sand in his throat, cough a little bit, and throw it down. Each monkey would try it, each monkey would throw it down, and this happened morning after morning after morning. The scientists would leave the potatoes, monkeys would pick them up, take a bite, leave them down in disgust. One morning, it's not clear why, but a juvenile monkey, a baby monkey, about 18 months old, took one of the sweet potatoes, and didn't just... Keep it or eat it, she went over to the water and began playing with it in the water. And after she took it out of water, she took a bite and she noticed that she could eat it and there's no sand in her throat. So she took another bite and another bite. Well, her mother, seeing what the baby did, also took a bite. And that baby monkey had learned the trick that if you wash off the sand, there's no sand on the sweet potato, then you could enjoy the rest of the treat. And every morning the colony would come down pick up the sweet potatoes, and every morning, the baby monkey would wash off the sweet potato, her mother the same, and all the other monkeys would watch. And the question that the scientists wanted to know was, how long would it take for the rest of the colony to learn this new behavior? And the answer was a while. As a matter of fact, four years, (laughs) because the scientists began the study in 1952, And it wasn't until 1958, six years later, that the entire colony had learned this behavior. They watched day after day while the baby monkey and its mother did this little trick. They watched the baby monkey and the mother enjoy the sweet potato. And it took six years until the entire colony had adopted this trait. Why is that? Because while the Nefesh Abahami imitates wisdom, it is not wise at all. Within the animal instinct, Hashem implanted all of the drives necessary to keep that animal alive. And while the animal may look like it's exhibiting wisdom, there's no forethought, there's no wisdom, it's pure instinct. Like a computer program, if this, then that, if this, then that, it's rather sophisticated, but there's no anokhi, there's no I, there's no wisdom. And when you begin studying the Nefesh Bahami, what you see very quickly is that the nefesh bahami is utterly dumb. <clears throat> the nefesh bahami can only see that which is immediately in front of me, and it can only see that which is revealed. If it's not obvious, <clears throat> if it's not revealed, if it's a step away, if it's behind a screen, the nefesh bahami can't see it. And if the results aren't immediately there, the nefesh bahami doesn't care about them. And when you understand this, you can begin to understand the human being. You never watch a man lose his temper. And suddenly he becomes a vastly different person. He'll say things that he'll never say otherwise. He'll do things that he never would have done. And at that moment, if you ask him, why are you doing that? Why am I doing Because that guy's a Russia, and he's a... And he'll justify what he's doing with all types of clear, rational arguments. And ask that same man the next day, would you do it again? No. Why'd you do it then? I don't know. But sir, you, you presented all kinds of rationales. The guys a rushing, he's wicked and what he did. I know, but I was just in the heat of the moment. What do you mean in the heat of the moment? In the heat of the moment, what happened was the anger flared up, <clears throat> covered up his eyesight, and now the essence of he, the combination of Nevisha Bahami and Nevisha Sikhli was changed, and he now viewed the world differently. You see, when desires Midos flare up, the eye view the world differently. What happens is, in the balance of eye, if there's laziness, if there's arrogance, if there's anger, if there's desire, it flames up in front of me, and I now see the world through a different lens. I now view the world no longer through a clear, opaque vision. I now view the world through a lens of red or green or blue, whatever color that particular Mida is. And all of my logic is useless because I'm looking at a different world. And if you'd like to understand the human being, you have to understand that to allow for free will, what Hashem did was blur the consciousness of man. You see, if my eyesight was clear, I would be like a malach. Malachim have free will. They could listen to Hashem or they could not. They don't violate the will of Hashem because they see the results so clearly. Much like I don't break my thumb I don't drink bleach, I don't put my hand in a fire, a malach sees with absolute clarity the results, and it won't do something that's foolish, because it's damaging. The neshama sees with absolute clarity, and that would not allow for bechira. <clears throat> to allow for free will, Hashem put me, the brilliant neshama, into this guf, the nefesh Bahami, and mix the two together, and what that accomplishes is it blurs the consciousness of man now i have a different version now i look at things differently <clears throat> one minute i'm this and next minute i'm that one minute i desire this and next minute i desire that and the mix is ever changing with different parts <clears throat> ever coming out one moment it's a red filter next minute a blue filter and the i am ever in a state of confusion and if you'd like to see a muscle that i believe wells defines this imagine the following imagine you're walking in a street just at night and you see a well dressed man He's on all fours, looking under a car. So you bend down, sir. Can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for my keys. Oh, I'm sorry. You are looking for your keys? Yeah, I dropped my house keys. And you notice that he's drunk. Oh, I'm sorry. You dropped your house keys. Uh, let me help you. And you, you help you look, and you look, and you look. And <clears throat> despite that, both of you looking, and you're not drunk. You can't find the keys. And finally, you say to him, "Sir, I, I don't understand. Are you sure that you dropped your keys here?" No, I didn't drop my keys here. Where did you drop them? I dropped him by the bar a block away. So, why are you looking here? Why am I looking here? Because there's more light here. It's easy to see him here, huh? Sir, are you rational? Now, you're not going to ask that question to him why? Because he's drunk. But here's the point there's processing going on there. He said logical things. It is logical that it's easier to see here, it's easier to find the keys under the light than it is in front of a bar where it's dark. So there's something that looks like intelligence, something that feigns wisdom, but it's blurred. He's drunk. And if you'd like to understand the human, that is the human condition. We are brilliant, we're insightful, and we are drunk. A man can present such intelligent processing, such intelligent thought to explain why he's destroying his life. Listen to an alcoholic Listen to a man who's deeply involved in desire. You won't hear him say, I'm a failure. He'll give you rationales and excuses and stories. And his brilliant mind is functioning, functioning against him and working to destroy him because he's drunk. And that is the human condition. We are ever in the state of confusion, ever in the state of being mixed up. And the reason why Hashem made us that way is because now we have free will. Now within me there is a clear knowledge that that which Hashem commanded me is for my benefit. That which Hashem warned me against damages me. And yet I don't so clearly see it. I do and I don't. I want and I don't. And I'm in an ever confused state, mixed up. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Our job in life is to grow. The more the nefeshah sickly becomes dominant, the more powerful it becomes, the less the nefeshah bahami has a hold. The more clearly we see things, but we're in ever-changing Existence and our job is to make it clearer and clearer, and I believe that's shot in Noah. Noah was a tzaddik of unimaginable proportions, <clears throat> he didn't see things with 50% clarity, he saw it with 70, 80, maybe 90% clear. But even he, as great as he was, it was some level of I don't know if it's really going to happen, I'm not sure. I mean, it probably will happen, but I'm not not 100%. Even Noah was not a malach. Even Noah had some effect of the darkness of physicality, <clears throat> some effect that was on him, and as a result, he couldn't see it clearly. As great as he was, <clears throat> as much of a tzaddik as he was, he was 85%, 90%, but that wasn't enough. There was still some level of doubt. He was ma'min, ve'inu ma'min. He got it and he didn't. And I believe that this is a very significant lesson for us. You see, <clears throat> people make a fundamental mistake about Amuna, about I'm a ma'min! I'm part of the club. I believe in God. I believe in Hashem, the Torah, of course. Emunah is not an on or off switch. Emunah is gradient levels. The question is, how much of a mammon are you? Do you see Hashem? 5%, 10%, 15%. Our job in life is to grow level after level, amount after amount. But the increments are very, very small. And while it's very easy to say the words, I'm a mammon, I believe... It's not about just saying the words. It's about feeling it. In my drunken state, I could say the words, I believe in Hashem, and I believe that everything in this world is dictated directly by Hashem. <clears throat> Hashem is totally in charge of everything. And then I'm walking down the street and a little dog runs after me. <coughs> Sir, what happened to you? talking. He just said a whole she'er about the fact that Hashem runs the world. It's very easy to process the words. It's very easy to say them but in my heart of hearts, how much do I feel them? <clears throat> how much has that reality become to me real is one of the great challenges of life. And used to say, in this universe, the greatest distance is between the heart and the mind. Cognitively knowing things, <clears throat> intellectually understanding them is important. But if you're drunk, you're not going to feel them. You're still going to look under the car because there's more light there but I I know it's not intelligent. I could tell you I dropped the keys over there. Yeah, well, that's an intellectual world, but I'm living in my operating mode in the world that I feel, I feel differently about it. And our job in life is to gain clarity, to gain understanding, to see Hashem more and more clearly, more and more focused, to recognize Hashem, not in theory, not mouthing the words, but to be it, to feel it, for that to be the reality for us to leave our drunken state. And I want to share with you an example of this concept, because I think it well defines it. The extermination camps that the Nazis started implementing weren't until deep into the war. During the initial years, what they would do is they would go into different towns in Poland, in Russia, and they would just exterminate the Jews. They would just round them up and gather them in a small little area, Oftentimes, they demanded that the Jews dig their own graves, and they would shoot them down dead. The Telzer Rov was in one such situation. The Nazis had marched into Tels and they took the town out to the cemetery. They forced them to dig a large, large pit. And the Nazi leader recognized the Telzer as the leader of the Jews, and he decided to have a little fun. So they lined up the Jews by the grave, and they decided that bullets were needed for the war effort. Bullets are wasteful, so instead of using guns, the Nazis decided they were just going to use a hammer. And this Nazi approached the <coughs> Telzerov and said, "Herr Rabiner, Sir Rabbi, wie is dem Gott today? Where is your God?" Which point the Telzerov looked at the Nazi and said, "Er is nit blöis mein Gott. He's not only my God." As, Achit dein Gott. He's also your God. And one day the entire world will know this. And with those words, the Nazi took the hammer, smashed the Telzerov on the head, and he fell dead. That is real emuna. What the Telzerov understood is that Hashem runs the world. If his time was not up, there is nothing that he or any other human being could have done to change that were obligated to do eshtadlis. Clearly, if the Telzer Rav had an option to escape or something of the like, he would have. But it was also clear that he was not in control of the situation. <clears throat> and what he understood was that Hashem runs the world, that Hashem decrees how many years I will live, Hashem decrees how my end will come about. And with that total clarity of thought, he looked at this Nazi and said the words, he's not just my God, he's also your God as well. And one day the whole world will see it. But that clarity and that moment takes years and years and years of work. Because that's a real test. Not a test when it's easy to mouth the words, shem runs the world. Not a test when it's just a philosophical, theoretical discussion. That's a test when it's real. And that is a very inspiring story and a very powerful lesson. The Rambam defines the essence of Amuna. An imamim shalima she'abori yisparach, that Hashem hu'bori umanig, He's the creator and one who runs the world. <clears> the <throat> levado, that Hashem alone, asa, Ose yasal cholamasim. Hashem alone did, does, and will do all activities on the planet. In plain, simple language, no happenstance, no <clears throat> things just occurring. Hashem actively involved in the running of every single activity on the planet. But knowing that, being margishet, understanding it with clarity, is what life is about and is what growth is about. And to put this into perspective, I want to share with you a simple observation. At that moment, that Nazi that tells Arov, what did it look like from Shemayim? Let's imagine that we were not on the scene there on the ground level. Let's imagine that we were 35,000 feet up in Shemayim and we were watching and witnessing. What did it look like from that perspective? So let me share with you a mushal. Imagine that you're at a play, a puppet play. You take your child to the puppet play and out walks the villain. And you could clearly see the puppeteer above. It's a marionette. The puppeteer is moving the strings, and he makes the arms of the villain go, and the villain's voice goes, I'm going to kill all of you. And the hero comes out and draws a sword. And again, you see the puppeteer up there moving the marionettes, moving the the strings, and the hero pulls out a sword, and the hero and the villain go into a a fight, and the villain kills the hero, and the hero falls down, and the villain says, I got you. The curtain comes down, the play is over. After the play, you take your young son behind the scenes and you show him the puppets. And there's the villain, the bad villain, lying there, as a puppet is, lifeless, just a piece of wood. And your little son goes, oh, that's the villain. Let's stay away, Tati. In a child's mind, the villain is powerful. In a child's mind, the villain is a scary thing. But as an adult, you understand that the puppeteer controls the puppet. <clears throat> the puppeteer made the villain move this way and that way. The puppeteer gave the voice to the villain. And it's not the puppet, but the one behind pulling the strings that we have to fear. And let's come back to this Nazi scene <clears throat> as we see that Nazi. Helebine, heint is dem God. And we get to look above and see Hashem pulling the strings making him say those words. And it tells the Rav, it says, mein got, at which point the puppet moves the hammer and pulled by the string, moves the hammer down. But we see it and witness it from above. What we see is Hashem orchestrating and controlling every activity on the planet. And with that, we can begin to understand much of life. If you go to an animated movie, watch a video today, and you'll see the animation is very impressive, very, very real. And you see Dumbo the elephant flying, and you see Mickey Mouse doing all kinds of things, all kinds of animated caricatures, doing all kinds of clever things, and they'll sing, and they'll dance, and they'll jump, and they kind of almost look real. And because of computerization, and because of sophisticated technology, Hollywood has come a long way in making animated Films look very real, but one of the great challenges is when they put a live actor to act opposite an animated character. When there's a real live actor who's got to act with Dumbo or act with whatever the caricature is, it becomes very challenging. Why? Because to my eye, when I'm watching the video, it looks like the caricature is talking to the real live actor and the actor is talking back. But the problem is there is no such entity. Animation is a bluff. But the actor has got to act as if he's real. And that's the problem. You see, if I'm an actor and I'm standing opposite a live human being and he threatens me, I threaten back, and we scream and we yell and we fight and we kick and we punch, it's very real. And against him, I'm playing. And his energy provides my energy and it makes it real. But how do you take a live actor and make him look real when there's nothing there? The artist is going to draw in the animated character after and the actor's got to look like he's really fighting this beast and he's really punching and getting punched and getting but there's no one there. How do you make the actor look real? So what they do is they provide props and if you watch them make the movie, sometimes it's humorous and you can have a actor professional trained actor fighting with a broomstick. <laughs> and throwing the broom on the floor. Because that's about the size of the animated character, about the size of the broom. And there's something there that's a prop that allows him to act. And I'd like to share with you, that's exactly what the Tel Zorov perceived. This Nazi is not powerful. He's not in charge. He's a puppet. He's going through the motions as Hashem wants him. And the only question is, how will I act? Can I get him? What will my reactions be? And I'm being filmed. There's a camera that's filming me, and for eternity, what I am is based on my reactions here. Can I cut through the veil? Can I see through the lies of physicality? Can I see the puppeteer above pulling the strings and recognize this is not a scary human being? It's but a mop, it's but a piece of wood. And that type of growth requires years and years and years. And that type of growth can only come through living through life. What Noah was challenged with was saving the generation. He couldn't do that. He gave them Musr year after year. He built a Teva. He went through all the motions and he was a tremendous tzaddik. And as great as he was and understood that Hashem was going to bring it, he was on a level of 90, maybe 95% Muna. It wasn't yet 100%. There's no complaint against him. <clears throat> it's not a tfiyah, because it's probably as good as it gets. It's probably as much as a human being can reach. But this understanding that I will never see Hashem 100%, but my job is to grow from 2% to 5% to 8% to 10%, and to understand why it's so difficult, because part of me denies anything that's not obvious and overt. You ever dive in Shimon Esrei and find yourself somewhere way, way distant? You start Shimon Esrei properly. And you imagine that you're standing in front of Hashem. And you begin speaking to Hashem. And all of a sudden a thought comes into your mind and you're 3,000 miles away. And you don't wake up until you take three steps back. Where am I? What happened to you? What happened to you is you're a human being. And while we say the words, <clears throat> I recognize that Hashem is present. I recognize that I speak to Hashem. Their words. In my heart of hearts, do I know it? I know it 2%, 10%, 6%. It's a percentage. And as an honest admission over here, there are many a day when I start Shemana Esrei, and as I'm about to start Shemana Esrei, I either say the words or wish to say the words, Hashem, I'm sorry, I I forgot that you were here. You see, I'm very busy doing the things that I do. Hashem, I forgot that you're present, and I forgot that you exist in the world. Now, if you ask me, isn't Hashem present? Of course, Hashem's everywhere. Hashem's mokum, mokum means Hashem is the place. Hashem keeps physicality in existence. And now Hashem's keeping energy in existence and keeping matter in existence. Nothing would be here. So, of course, I know that. But knowledge is way up in the head. Yediyah means knowing it, feeling it in my reality. And our job in life is to constantly gain understanding, leave our drunken state to be unlike that drunk who the keys of his life, to wake up. And the way we wake up is by growing, by changing the balance, by allowing that part of me, the wise, intelligent part, to gain understanding by learning, by dominating, and more than anything, by going through events of life. I'd like to close this segment with a story that happened to a friend of mine. And every part of the story is exactly as it happened, except for one detail. He asked me to change his name, but everything other than that is exactly as it happened. Chaim Goldstein was learning a kolo, and his brother-in-law was living nearby, and his wife spoke to her sister, and they made up that both couples were going to be by Chaim's house for that Shabbos. So in fact, that was the plan. Chaim's wife began cooking. Late Thursday night, when she's all finished cooking, she gets a call from her sister, you know, my husband came home late, he's tired, we decided we're not going to come for Shabbos. Chaim was, we're not going to come for Shabbos. I cooked it. I prepared her. how can I come? <clears throat> the discussion ensues, do come, don't come, back and forth, back and forth, finally Chaim's wife I said, listen, I cook Shabbos already anyway, let's do this. I'll pack up all the food, and instead of both families being by me, <clears throat> we'll end up by you. That's what they decided, and both families, instead of being in Chaim's house at Shabbos, where at his brother-in-law. In any case, Chaim was a big masmid, <clears throat> and Shabbos especially, he'd be learning Gemara, most of the time, but he describes it when he walked into his brother-in-law's apartment, on the coffee table was a book called Who by Fire. I don't know if you've read this book, but this book is a very, very powerful story. A young woman living in Yushalayim, she's in her apartment when suddenly (laughs) the apartment bursts into flame. She runs out and she finds herself in the hall safe and she realizes that her kids are still back in the apartment. She runs and grabs one kid, <clears throat> runs and grabs a second, grabs a third. And in the end, she saved all of her children. But she also suffered burns on 85% of her body. The book, who by fire, is a very telling story of a woman's emunah habitachan. But it's also a harrowing read because you get to see what it means to be burnt alive. In any case, Chaim describes that he was mesmerized by the book. He picked it up and he couldn't put it down. He read it cover to cover and couldn't stop. He didn't think that much about it. <clears throat> that... Shabbat afternoon, he walked into yeshiva. And when he entered the basement, he went to get a sitter. And he went to take his place to Daman. And he looked up and he noticed that a lot of people were looking at him. My tie, my suit, well, what's this it <clears throat> doesn't make much sense out of it. He Daman's mincha, <clears throat> takes three steps back after Shema Esri, looks up, and again notices that everybody's looking at him. What's the deal? My tie, my suit? Why are you looking at me? He doesn't know what to make of it. After mincha, he goes over to a friend to visit and says, well, why is everybody looking at me? His friend said, oh, you didn't hear? No, hear what? So his friend said, well, <clears throat> I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but last night your house burnt down. Apparently at 2 a.m. the furnace burst into flame, the entire structure was engulfed. But Chaim, his wife, and his kids weren't there. But here's the point. The pivotal moment of Chaim's existence was not that Thursday night conversation, do come, don't come. The pivotal moment <clears throat> in Chaim's existence was the previous Rosh Hashanah. When there was a diyun, there was a judgment. On Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decides, and how. Not just who will live and who will die, but the exact method and manner of that in which it's to happen. And Chaim was being shown, read the book, and understand what it means to be burnt alive, and understand that for whatever which reason, you and your family were saved from this. And that understanding that Hashem is the shofate that Hashem runs the world, that Hashem creates a future for mankind and I am a man. Understanding that Hashem determines exactly what's to be, and Hashem is on the scene twenty four seven, three sixty five is the basis of our Amunna. But the work is not for it to remain up in my head, to feel it, to be margish it, and Mirz Hashem we're going to spend a lot more time in this series trying to understand this, feel it, and make it real.